0: Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. So uh, I remember last week at the end of it, I was like, huh, is God really, you know, I looked at my notes for what was going to be the, the topic for, for this week, and I was like, what is, is God good? That, that was my, that's what I had in my thing, and I, and I was like, I don't remember what that's about, you know? But uh, when I went back and read the questions, I realized, oh, yeah, that's why uh, we're, that's exactly what we're going to talk about tonight. You know, there's that, there's that Christian cliche thing that we always say, you know, and, it, it, and you know that, I think you know it, but it goes something like this, God is good and the, all the time, and all the time God is good. Yeah. See, she knows it. Somebody knows it, so that's good, but it, it's a statement. No, I wanted you to respond, so... Well, yeah, yeah. So, but, but, but it's a statement for Christians, right? I mean, we say it because we believe it. It's something in you know that we're 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 speaking out because we believe in it. But to many people in the world, it's a serious question. It's a question: Is God really good? Is God really good? I mean, uh, you know, you look around the world today and you think like, if God is really good, why is all of this happening? Why? Is everything in the world going on the way it is? Why do we have, you know, people dying at the hand of other people all the time? Why do we have such tragedies happening? Why do we have guys that, you know, um, set themselves up in hotel rooms and shoot down at people that are at concerts? Why do we have kids that are walking into schools and, you know, shooting innocent people? Why uh, do we have all of these things happening? Why do we, why? If God is good, why do we have these things happening? Because there is. We have the devil. That, that's my, my point in, in asking this question, uh, you know, is that we would have a greater understanding of who God is and really how he's interacting. There are those that would say uh, the reason that all this is existing is, is because God has taken his hand off the world and he's not sovereign in every circumstance, in every situation, but he has, has left it to chance and he's let the devil do whatever he wants to do. No, that's not true. Uh, you know, we know that the devil has to, has to even to get permission from God to do anything that he does. And, and that's, that's evident in the book of Job. You know, we see it. Many people believe that there's no way that God, that God has essentially created the world and set it into motion and has let his hand off of it. If that were the case, uh, we would be in big, big trouble as Christians because the enemy would just devour us. So thankfully that is not true either. You know, what we want to do is look at what the Bible has to say about these things. And specifically, I I, I think the questions that I was asked regarding this, I kind of summarize these questions into a question. But here's the specific questions. There's two of them that were relating to this specific topic. And and here's the first one. This person said, I was once asked, how can I live for a God who wiped out the earth with Noah and the flood? enslavement genocide of cities and their people so the question here is how can i live for a god they're assuming there is a god so how can i live for a god who would uh you know do such things who would destroy the world who would destroy people who would you know allow these things who would command genocide what you know why would i live for a god like that that's the first question then another question was relating to that almost the exact question how can God wipe out a city and then later curse them with some hardship or disease? So, so both of the questions, I believe, are direct questions relating to the, character and the, na- the nature and the character of God. You know, if you boil it down to really what, is the, what, what are these questions asking, assuming that there's a God, which we'll talk about in a second, because many people who, who make this argument are atheists. You know, and this is one of their strongest arguments, actually, but um, about their about God not existing. But assuming there is a God, which we obviously believe, or we wouldn't be here. But it's, but but you know, with that said, you know, why is He allowing these things? Why is why is He even, in some degree, orchestrating these things? What what's the deal there? You know, it's really a question. The core of the question is: Is God really good? Is He really good? Is he truly everything he says he is in the Bible? Is he really a good God that, that is for us, that wants to redeem us? Or is he a God who is, you know, he wakes up in bad moods and just decides to destroy things? No. You know, that, that's what we're going to consider. Is God really good? What is his character like? Now, when you look at the, the definition of the word good... And part of what we're dealing with in, a, in our culture today is that this ever-changing definitions of things, you know, that we don't know what marriage means today, so we, we, we are constantly changing. Who knows what it will mean in 10 years, to be honest, because we don't know what it means today. Today we've redefined it to mean something that it didn't mean 40 years ago. So in the next 10 or 20 years, because we're so progressive and we move so fastly, what will it mean? We don't know, because definitions are changing. And uh, when you look at the, the word good... In the, the, the Webster Dictionary, as of today, this is what it says. It's, it, when it's speaking of a person, it speaks of someone who is of favorable character or tendency. That's what the definition is re- relating to a person, the word good, of favorable character or tendency. So, you know, the question is, is God of favorable character or tendency? Is the God that we read about in the Bible really a favorable character or tendency? If you answer yes to that, to whoever it is that you're talking to, the very next question is going to be this. Then how is it that a good God could allow evil to happen in the world? Why could He allow all of these, all this suffering, all this disease, all this starvation? If God is really good, why would He allow all these things? Why would He allow them? And again, it's a a question of God's nature and character. Now, before we go any further, this is something that I I feel personally, uh, you know, strongly about, and I want to preface everything that we're going to talk about from this point forward with this one thought, that God needs no rescue and He needs no defense from me or you. God doesn't need our help. He's not... He's not waiting for somebody to defend his honor. He's not waiting for us to step in and say, well, stand up for me. You know, of course we will stand up for him, but he doesn't need it. You know, because God is so, so secure in who he is. He's not worried about people who have misnomers about him, have, a, have you know, wrong ideas about him. What God will do is reveal himself to people. He'll just begin to reveal the truth to them. And they'll be faced with the truth. They have to respond to that themselves. But, it, you know, when it comes to these kind of topics, the Bible speaks for itself. We, God doesn't need our help to try and defend him. And oftentimes what happens is when we get in these conversations is Christians get upset about, about the conversation. You know, and, and, you know, maybe it's just because oftentimes, to be honest, the questions aren't honest. They're not legitimate questions. They're not really asking because they want to know. It's a challenge. It's, it's, a, it's really the enemy in, in some ways trying to deceive you, you know, trying to get you and in backed into a corner. But here's the thing is God doesn't need our defense. He is able to defend himself, and he does so. And, in fact, you know, it, it, one of the greatest things that we see in the Bible is when God speaks the world into existence and he doesn't give us any, any more information about it at all. He just lets it stand there. And he says, it's because of who I am. So just deal with that, you know. And you're like, well, hold on a second. What was going on before that? How did, Jesus, you, know, how did you guys exist from eternity past? You know, I need to know more. And he says, no, you just need to trust me. You know, so he, he reveals to us what we need to know, number one. But he doesn't need us to defend him. You know, let us not feel the need... to to rescue God from the hands of angry sinners. We don't have to do that. Rather, you know, let us come to this conversation with the idea that, you know, we'll never ever truly understand every why that could possibly be asked. We We couldn't possibly answer every one of those questions and the devil wants to come up with those questions that we can't answer. You know, and so when we encounter those things, you know, we can tend to get upset about them and, and try and defend God, and we don't need to do that. We just need to rest in who He says He is. And, of course, we tell people who He is, but we don't have to defend Him. God is everything that He says He is in His Word, and He will never fall short of any of it. He will be everything that He said He is, and He will. you'll see that in your life. You may not see it in the moment, but you will see that God is truly everything that He says He is. And secondly... Not only that, but God will bring glory to himself in every circumstance. And that's probably the main point of everything is that God will bring glory to himself. And he brings glory in different ways that we probably don't understand. So those who who would ask this question, why does God allow these things in life, are questioning the nature and the character of God. Because they can't reconcile the idea that there's a God who is supposed to be good and there is evil that exists, and they can't coincide together. There's no way. There's either no God, or he's not everything that he says he is in the Bible. That's the whole point of the, 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 the question. In fact, uh, C.S. Lewis said, the problem of pain is atheism's most potent weapon against the Christian faith. In this, this, this whole concept of suffering and pain and disease and all of that is... is Probably the most potent weapon against the Christian faith. It's a difficult thing for us to grasp. It's hard for us to comprehend, even as we do, you know, Bible believing people. You know, we read the Bible and, um, you know, we we see things in the Bible that are kind of harsh sometimes. And we think, like, man, Lord, you know, I remember reading through the Bible the first time I ever read through the Bible as a young Christian. And I, I was reading the Old Testament, and I used to get up at 5 a.m., and I'd be on my treadmill. I'd have my Bible on my treadmill, and I was just walking or running or whatever, and I can read when I run, so whatever, but I can do it. But, um, uh, you know, and I, and I was reading the Old Testament, and I was reading about how God commanded different, different cities to just be wiped off the face of the map, literally leave nothing alive, destroy everything utterly and completely destroy them. And I remember one time I verbally said this, as I finished my, my run, I, I verbally said, man, God is mean. God is mean. And here's the thing, is I didn't have a complete and total perspective and understanding of who God was. It was my humanism, my my, my logic, my my mind as a human being, living in a culture that has defined everything that I know, what good is, what evil is, you know, how, how they can't coincide together. And as I read the Bible, I read them through with a humanistic mindset, right? And I said, man, God's mean. As I've read through the Bible more and more, and I've, I've read through the Bible a few more times since then, and as I read through the Bible uh, today, I can tell you when I get to those passages, I think what a merciful and gracious God we have that he would put up with man for so long And we'll see here in a minute, Uh, you know, some of these tribes that God was contending with, he had put up with them for hundreds of years, the abominations that they did. This is the patience and the love of God that would put up with, with, he would be justified in all that he does because he's holy and righteous and just. And yet he would patiently love people in their situation, in their sin for hundreds of years before he would act. And what, so what I find now as I read through the Bible, I think, God, you were so gracious and loving. You read through the book of Revelation, and you see that, you know, the, the, the wars that are going to happen, the amount of people that are going to die, the blood's going to flow, you know, like it's never flowed before. And yet, I read the book of Revelation and think, God, you are so gracious and so patient that you would wait this long thousands of years you would allow this world to go on and majority of people would reject you the bible says the road that leads to destruction is wide and many go that way and only a few <laughs> would 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 walk the path that leads to life but god would wait for you and he would wait for me and he would wait for anybody who would call upon jesus it's amazing and he is gracious and loving the argument that people make regarding pain is something like this. If God is who the Bible says he is, then he is omniscient. That means he's all-knowing. Then he is omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. And he is also perfectly good. So why would he allow these things to happen and even orchestrate them? So the issue, again, it is attempting to try and reconcile the existence of evil and the existence of God at the same time. So some go on to say that God must not exist because evil is present. Others go on to say that God must not be everything that the Bible says he is. So how do we deal with that sort of question? What, what do we do? We do what we always do. What do we always do? When we come to questions about who God is, where do we go? We go to the Bible. In the Bible. We go to God's word because it, is the, it defines for us who God is. It is the revealer for us. And so we're going to look at um, very quickly in light of these three characteristics of God, is He everything He says He is first? Is He really omnipotent? Is He all-powerful? Is He really omniscient? Is God morally good? So here we go. Is God omnipotent? Again, is He all-powerful? According to Revelation chapter 19, verse 6, the answer is yes. John writes this, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder, crying out hallelujah for the Lord God Almighty reigns. It, the title here, being used for God, the Almighty, that word Almighty, in the Greek literally means omnipotent. Omni means all, potent, powerful, all powerful. In fact, in the New King James uh, Version, it translates it as such, it renders the passage for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. The Bible declares... Three, 263 times in the ESV translation, that God is almighty, that he is omnipotent. That means 263 times there is a declaration in the Bible that says that God is omnip- omnipotent, that he is all powerful. That the only way that God can be sovereign, listen, is if he's omnipotent. That's the only way he can be in control of everything, is if he has the power to do so. He has to be all powerful, he has to be almighty. To control every situation. Jesus made it clear that God was omnipotent. He said in Matthew 19, 26, with man this is impossible, but with God, listen, all things are possible. Why are all things uh, can be possible because God is all-powerful. But if God were not all-powerful, He all things would not be possible. The context here is when Jesus was speaking, is about salvation. And Jesus said that. With man, salvation is impossible, but with God, all things are possible, including saving the sinner from condemnation. So Jesus made it clear that God was omnipotent. Jesus also told Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time of year and Sarah shall have a son. Job declared God omnipotent in Job chapter 42, verse 2. I know that that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That means that God is all-powerful. Jeremiah said the same thing, Jeremiah 17, 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Listen, I could go on and on and on. There's multiple. There's many, many more scriptures that declare that God is all-powerful, that he is omnipotent. Lest I even mention the fact that God spoke these words, let there be, and there was, creation. God spoke the world into existence simply with his words. He is omnipotent. Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. There's no better declaration in all the Bible that God is omnipotent than to look at the creation story. God is omnipotent. Secondly, is God omniscient? Is he all-knowing? The Bible declares this with a resounding yes. God knows everything. <laughs> that might be scary for you. I remember one time we told our kids, my, my wife said, listen, God knows everything. He's watching you now. And it scared the daylights out of them. They didn't want to go to sleep. They're like, what? Somebody's watching me. They know everything about me. It's true. He does know us. But here's the thing. He's a father, and he loves us. And he, he's, he's watching us to, to watch over us, to keep us you know, drawn to himself. He, he's looking out for us. But God knows everything, 1 John 3.20. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. He knows the minutest detail of our lives, and He even knows the number of hairs on your head. You know that? He cares about us. That's that's why He knows so much about us. Not only does God know everything about us and everything about the world, but He knows the end of history itself, Isaiah 46, 9, and 10. Remember the former things of old. For I am am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. He knows our very thoughts even before we speak them. Psalm 139, verse 4. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Before you say a word, he knows it. He knows our hearts from afar. He even saw us in the womb. Psalm 139, 1 1 through 3. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with my ways. And then in Psalm 139, 15 through 16, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them before you were even born God was thinking about you he knew you he created good works for you to walk in I mean this God is he is all-knowing but he is incredibly relational Solomon expre- expresses the tr- this truth perfectly in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 39. For you, you alone, know the hearts of all the children of mankind. He knows every single heart. The writer of Hebrews said, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him, to whom we must give an account. I mean, again, I could go on and on and on with multiples of scriptures that speak about God being all-knowing. He's all-knowing. That leads us to the final point. Is God morally good? Is God morally good? According to David, the answer is unequivocally yes. First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 34. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. The Hebrew word here that David uses here for good is tov. And it literally means good, pleasant, and agreeable, but it also can mean morally good. And that is the context. For he is good. Is he good and pleasant and agreeable? Of course he is, but he's more than that. He is morally good. David wrote on, in Psalm 27, verse 13, I believe that I should look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Um, you know, how many of you guys have experienced the goodness of God in your life? You know, we all have. If you're breathing today, um, you know, then you're experiencing the goodness of God because we don't deserve that. But God is good. He is morally good. He, 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 he loves us and he's, he's there. He's drawing us. You know, He is wooing us to Himself. He is a good God. Uh, God said to Moses in Exodus uh, 33 verse 19, "I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord." Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 33:11 "Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good for his steadfast love endures forever. That, that song Uh, is repeated over and over in Scripture. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. God is morally good. What does that mean? That means that He does not violate any kind of moral law that He put in place. That's what it means to be morally good. Are we morally good people? We say, actually, don't we say that? You know, like, well, you know, so-and-so is a morally good person. Well, what does that mean? That means that they're, you know, they're not murdering people, they're not killing people, they're not uh, you know, selling drugs, and you know, they're not doing you know, all these kinds of things that we define as evil, right? So we're, we'll say that person is a morally good person. But here's the thing is we only see the outside. So that's not a true statement. There are no morally good people. Jesus said there is only one that is good. And God is the only one that is good and at that point, someone would say, Well, they're right there, says Jesus, Jesus was proclaiming he is God. No, not Jesus was saying that he, only God is good. No, Jesus was saying he was God there, actually. He was declaring the fact that because he is good, he is God. So, you know, our, our, our world, you know, kind of, we're at a disadvantage because we take terms, biblical terms that mean so much more, and we, we reduce them and make them human so that we can all feel good about ourselves. We say like, yeah, well, that person's a morally good person. They're not stealing. They're not cheating. They're not lying. They're not killing. They're not murdering. They're not doing these things. And yet, we have no idea what's going on in our heart. We, we can't say that. But what we can say is that God is morally good. And in fact, it is, His moral goodness is defined by His righteousness, the fact that He is righteous. Dr. Michael w- uh, Williams said this, he said, a, 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 a simple Webster's definition of righteousness is morally good, following religious or moral laws. Well, what does the Bible say about God and righteousness? That God is righteous, that he's morally good. Psalm 119, 137 Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. The word righteous means lawful, just, and right. Right? So He is righteous. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4. The rock, he, His work is perfect for all His ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. His righteousness is defined. Uh, his righteousness declares His moral goodness. He is righteous and we know that. So we, we see from, from Scripture clearly and, you know, again, we could go on and on, but we see clearly that God is emphatically omnipotent, He is omniscient, and He is perfectly good. He is morally good. So the argument of God not being all of these things is off the table because we just, we just debunk that. That is not true. God is everything He says He is. So the only thing left is whether He exists or not. And we know He exists because, again, the Bible declares that He exists, right? Uh, we wouldn't be here if God didn't exist because creation itself is from God. He created everything with his words. So that is off the table. So where does that leave us? That leaves us with this this question of why then, if God is everything that he says he is, if he is really um, omnipotent, if he is omniscient, if he is all-powerful, then why does he uh, wipe out nations and allow evil in the world? Then why would he do that? It's clearly a question of us understanding god 's nature and character and why he would do these things I want to give you three biblical answers for why God allows evil and acts um, evil and acts against mankind at certain points throughout history listen we, we might not like the answers, but here's three of them This is not an exhaustive list by the way three answers that i that I've researched number one um, why does God allow? evil in the world and why does he act out against nations throughout history? Because God is God and he has the absolute right and ownership over everything. That's why. Because he is God. God makes probably one of the most offensive declarations to many people in Exodus chapter 19 verse 5 where he says, all the earth is mine. All the earth is mine. Not only that Psalm 50 verse 10 he says every, every beast of the forest is mine the opening line of scripture declares in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth this is a declaration that all belong to him Psalm 21 verse 1 or 24 verse 1 declares the the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and those who dwell in it God created everything he owns everything and therefore he can he is free to do whatever he wants because he owns it isn't that how we walk around our this is my property i can do whatever i want you know uh, y- your neighbor right he this is my property i can turn my radio up as long as how you know as loud as i want i can do whatever i want because this is mine i paid for this this is my car these are my clothes this is my stuff i can do whatever i want and we are acting in a in an imperfect sovereign way we're saying this is mine. I can do whatever I want with it. If I want to, you know, I've seen people, you know, take their devices and, you know, throw them, break them. Hey, uh, why'd you do that, man? It's mine. I can do whatever I want. Okay, well, cool. But that was dumb. But, you know, God doesn't work that way, you know. He, he, he's in control of everything because he owns everything. He can, do, he can move throughout the world and do whatever he wishes. According to Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. He does whatever He pleases. Within His sovereign command, God has given man a free will. God is in 100% in control. He can do whatever He wishes, and, and what He does is He gives you and I free will. I will that. Now, in some degree we like that. We're like, "Cool, God gave us free will. So we're not robots. We can do what we want." But in but in other ways that it was uh, you know, that backfires on us. Because our free will is not in, in the context of you know, God's you know, doing whatever he pleases. Our free will is in the context of divine law. So it's in the context of divine law. He has chosen to allow man to out, act out sinfully Towards him and towards each other, and uh, you know, since the beginning of time. And we see that in the Garden of Eden, where he commanded Adam and Eve, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he gave the command, but he also gave them free will. Because God doesn't want robots, he, you know, that's not love. We'll see in a minute. God is love, and love allows people to choose. Love allows people to express their freedom to come. However, you know in whatever time they desire, now we understand that God is in you know the one that draws us in all but but ultimately we have to respond at some point he's given us that that right or whatever you call that and since the beginning of time, man has been acting out against the Lord, starting at the that 's why we have mass shootings that's why we have you know kids walking into schools, we have murders that's why we have all the sinful things going on because God has given us free will. And that's also why we see God wipe out tribes and nations of people in the Bible. Why? Because He instituted free will in man. He's allowed man to act out however they would exercise their free will in this world. And, you know, allowing them to do whatever it is that they desire to do. But not without consequence. Because remember, our free will is tied to divine law. It is not a freedom to do whatever we want, whenever we want. It is a a freedom to act in expression of love, to follow God with our whole hearts freely. Because we want to, not because we have to. You know, the song we sang earlier, you know, I'll praise you, not because I have to, not because I ought to, but because that I may, because I can, because He gave me the right to do it. And it's a beautiful picture. But God has allowed man to act out in these ways, and what has man done? Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, it says this. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. God is God and He can do whatever He wants. He gave us free will to act out under the premise of divine law. And He has been extremely patient with us in allowing us to do these things. And what did did man do? Man traded the truth for a lie. Man exchanged the glory of who God was for some lesser image that has no power. Some thing in the world that we're chasing after something that resembles God but has no power. God had the right to do that because He created the world. And He also has the right to judge the world based on all of the different things that he's done. He is creator, and he has creator rights. No one will ever say, what are you doing? As Job did to him in Job chapter 9, verse 12. What are you doing? And God said to Job, oh, Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? Where were you when I was doing these things? You want to question me? (laughs) You want to question my nature, my character, Job? I'm God. I created it all. And I'm acting out in the, the nature and the character of who I claim myself to be. So he's God, number one. He is God, and that's why, he can, why these things exist, because he can, um, he's allowed them to happen, and he, he's, he takes action over sin because he has the right to do so. Secondly, because God is patient and just in all that he does. Check this out. I, imagine for a moment if we lived in a world where God wasn't patient. And, you know, he, didn't, he wasn't long-suffering towards us. Like, he didn't wait for us to respond to him, but he expected immediate response or judgment. How many of us would be here? None of us, because none of us would respond immediately. There would be no redeemed people. God would, one, would and, and here's the thing, God would be 100% just in his acting out in that moment. He would be 100% just in, 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 in judging the world. However, God doesn't act like that towards us. He is patient towards us. 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but all should come should reach repentance. Listen. Some of some of us wear God out a lot. I mean, you can't wear God out, but if there's people that wear God out, it's you and me. We wear him out. We're, he's been waiting for years, you know, for us, and you know, he, and he'll wait. He's patient. There's been people in the history of the world that have um, that that God has orchestrated. And he's re, he's he's done all kinds of amazing things in their life, and yet they still reject him. They won't. They won't. They won't receive him. And yet, what does the word say? He's patient towards you. He's patient towards you. He is long-suffering, even though he could call us on our debt in a moment. He could say, Tim, you know, he, he waited 24 years for me. He could have called me on, the, on, on day one and said, you know what? Your debt is this, and you can't pay it. You are eternally damned. And he would have been just doing that because he... You know, he would, have been, he would have been right to do that because he's God and he can do whatever he wants. But he is also just and holy and righteous. And he, he doesn't have to be merciful, but he is. That's part of his attributes. And so he is. But there have been people who have, you know, used their time unwisely and done all kinds of heinous crimes and sins and different things like that. But because of God's patience have come to Christ later in life. And, you know, it's it simply, God could have called them on the carpet in the moment, but He didn't. He waited because He's patient. If God would have judged these people immediately, they would have had no hope for forgiveness or redemption. But because God is a God of hope, He gave them hope in the fact that they could be forgiven, just like you and I, that w- if we would come to Christ. There was a, na- a man named Joshua Balhi, who is a recipient of God's patience. He was a warlord in the first lib- uh, uh, Liberarian civil war in the 1990s. He murdered—listen, up to 20,000 people. This guy did. He murdered up to 20,000 people. God revealed Himself to Joshua much like He did to Paul. He said he saw a bright light and he heard the words, "Repent of your sins. Repent of your sins." And, you know, through that process, he came to know Christ, he repented of his sins, and, uh, you know, this guy is now uh, the president of the end time training uh, evangelistic ministries over there in um, Liberia, and he is uh, focused on restoring gangs, uh, gang members, reforming the lives of former soldiers, and dealing with different conflicts that are happening over there in Liberia, but But the only reason why he is doing these things today is because God was patient with him. God was patiently waiting for him. This guy was not a good guy. He was not, in in, even in the earthly sense of a good guy, he he was a murderer. But God waited. He is patient with him. God waits on man to respond. But here's the thing there comes a time, there is a time frame. Like there's a point in time where God says, "Okay, you've had enough time. You you've had all the time. You are you have made your decision." And we see that with Pharaoh. When God allowed him to make his choice over and over and over again when when he sent Moses to Pharaoh and and you know, they had that that exchange, you know, of the the different plagues and all, and you know, Pharaoh let my people go and then He'd say, okay, I'm going to let him go, and then he wouldn't let him go, and he kept waffling back and forth. Well, eventually, it says that as the first few times that happened, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. But if you read the account, there comes a point in which it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What happened? Pharaoh had made his decision. God, in his his all-knowingness, in his omniscience, he saw that Pharaoh had made that decision that he was never going to come to Christ. And so God went ahead and made his decision sure, and he hardened his heart. And he would never, ever come to Christ. There comes a time in all of our lives where God says, hey, you are sealed. Your your fate is sealed. You have made that choice. You are going to do that. And and it's not that um, God isn't giving people opportunity. He just, he knows the end from the beginning. And he knows those who will follow him and those who won't. And so, with that kind of understanding, what, knowing that there comes a point in time in which somebody will find will, will reject the gospel over and over again to the point that they have made their decision, then perhaps it's at that point that God executes judgment on people here on earth. And, you know, it's, it's perhaps that point in which these tribes that we read about, the ites, the different tribes, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the... You know all the different ones—the um, Philistines and all these guys, the Amalekites, the Parasites, per- the whatever, <laughs> Hivites, the Jebusites—all these, all these different tribes. Perhaps they had made that decision, and God said, "Okay, your decision's sure." And it—and and at that point, God commanded the, the children of Israel to wipe these people out—women, children, infants, animals, everything. How could God do that? How could he do that? Why would he do that? Again, I told you earlier. The point in which God gave Abraham a promise for the land of Canaan, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. Uh, he gave him the promise, and it would be 400 years until that promise would be fulfilled, until God would command Joshua to go in and wipe out the nations to, to, to literally you know, kick them out to wipe out some of the cities and some of the people because they were so wicked. But but here's what God told, uh, it was 400 years, but here's what God told Abraham in Exodus chapter 15, verse 16. He said this, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. It would take, listen, the patience of God, if you don't if you don't see that, the patience of God, that he is so patient for 400 years, he would wait for their iniquity to be complete. Like He's not like their evil is not complete yet. Their evil is not complete yet. I'm still trying to reach them. I'm giving them opportunity. But after 400 years, he said, your, your iniquity is complete. I will cut you off now. You, are, you have completely and totally rejected me, and now I will cut you off. Listen, these people engaged in all kinds of acts of, of, you know, just debauchery, incest, infant sacrifice, ritual prostitution, bestiality. They did all of this, and God endured this for 400 years. For 400 years, he allowed them to do these things. And then he finally said no more. But he prophesied it 400 years earlier. And here's what I know about God. In the various different accounts in the Bible, that if someone would repent, that God would relinquish that which He set out to do. We see it with Hezekiah. Hezekiah was sick, right? And uh, you know, God said, "You're going to die." And so Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, turned his face towards the wall. He prayed to God and he said, "Lord, don't let me don't let me die. I want I'm yours. Whatever you want to do." And God added 15 years to his life. Why? Because he prayed, he turned his heart. God, what I'm saying is, when we come to God, when we repent to God, it changes Him. When we pray, it sometimes he, you know he, he set out to do one thing, and that He changes His mind based on our prayer. Listen, had these people turned their hearts towards the Lord, they would there would still be Jebusites and Perizzites and you know all these different tribes, but there aren't anymore because they didn't. So. Some will say, some scholars will say that, you know, well, God didn't really mean for them to wipe them out. He didn't really mean for them to completely destroy them. But l- let me let me you, you gauge this. You tell me. Joshua chapter ten, verse forty. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negeb, and the lowland and the slopes, and their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed. Just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. That seems clear. It seems that God commanded Joshua to devote to destruction all things that breathe. Everything. And yet, it was in his patience that he did that. But he was just in what he did. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4. The rock. His work is perfect and all His ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright as He is. Upright is He, I'm sorry. In our culture would cry, how unfair God is. How unfair He is that He would do these kinds of things. How unjust God is that He would wipe out cities and nations. And yet these people know these verses. And they'll quote these these verses where God would say, you know, hey, they know them well. But here's the thing is they don't understand the context. You know, they don't understand the heart of God. They don't understand what would the background of anything that's going on there. But they know the passage that says God said, commanded them to be destroyed. And so they would hold that against God. How unfair God is. No, God is not unfair. No one will stand before God in heaven and say, God, you were so unfair to me. You've been so unfair to me, God. How could you do that? if we find a person that says these kinds of things you know that we we understand that they're they don't they don't have the context of the bible and so because we're, we we want to give everybody the benefit of the, the doubt we want to say to them hey listen let's sit down let's get some context on the passage let me help you understand why god does what he does and again we can't answer every question but in this particular case, we know why. Because of sin. Man rebelled against God and for 400 years God put up with it and eventually he said, I'm not, I can't do it anymore. You've made your choice. And you can refer them, if, if, you know, very quickly you can just refer them to point one because God is God and he is creator of all things and he can do what he wants. He can do whatever he wants. And that isn't a cop-out. That is the truth. Here's what happens when when man begins to question God's fairness. We become the judge of God? We become the judge of God? God, you're so unfair. Well, who's the judge of that? You are. You're trying to be the judge of everything. Listen, I know that we are not capable of judging fairly. And so we can barely tell the head from the tail, man, you know? let alone judge what's fair and unfair regarding God. Justin Taylor said this. He said, although it is ultimately illegitimate to ask if God's ways are just in securing the promised land, it is perfectly appropriate and edifying to seek understanding on how God's ways are just. Whether in commissioning the destruction of the the various tribes in the Old Testament or any other action, this is, is the task of theology, seeing how various aspects of God's truth and revelation cohere. So, in other words, it's fine to ask the question if you're genuinely seeking to know God, but it's never appropriate to question God's character and His nature. It's never appropriate to question His character and His nature, but it's perfectly appropriate to seek out why God does what He does. And he tells us in various different ways. This brings us to our third point this evening. Because why does God allow these things in the world? Because God's love requires justice to be served. God's love requires, requires justice to be served. Many folks consider the attribute of God's love to be in competition with the attribute of justice. They are not. People will say, you know, and in fact, that is the question. If, uh, if God is so loving, then why would he, and you can fill in the blank, whatever it is, why would he send people to hell? Why would he allow evil in the world? Why would he allow suffering? Why would he allow disease? Why would he, if God was so loving, why would he do these things? As if his love and his justice are not coinciding. Listen, they work in perfect harmony. The Bible tells us in 1 John 4, 8, God is what? Love. God is love. He is the definition of love. John tells us that. And he acts out of love in every, every movement. Everything that he does is, is, is acting out in love. It doesn't matter what he's doing, he's acting out in love. As, it, as noted above, God is absolutely just in everything that he does. The only thing that any of us deserve from God is justice. We deserve justice. We don't deserve mercy but we get it. We don't deserve grace but we get it. You know, we deserve justice but many of us our justice was taken on by Christ on the cross. And so we are off the hook as it relates to his wrath. But we don't we don't deserve his love we deserve his justice. We broke the law. We rebelled against him. Divine justice demands divine punishment. That's the way that it works. God has to judge sin. If he doesn't judge sin, then he's not righteous. He's not holy. He's not not good. He's not loving if he doesn't uh, deal with these things, if he doesn't judge sin. And yet he does, because he is acting out in love when he does these things. In, it's in his timing, and it's, it's in his way, but he will act, and it will always be in love. Uh, in, in Exodus chapter 33, verse 19, it tells us that, uh, we read it earlier, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. He's speaking to Moses here, and I will proclaim you, uh, re- proclaim before you my name, the Lord and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So here's the thing is God can show mercy to whomever He desires to show mercy to, and He can be gracious to whomever He desires to be gracious to. And I would say that every one of us in this room are people that have experienced His mercy and His grace. I I think He's pretty liberal with His mercy and His grace. So He can choose to exercise them however he desires. But when he does, it's his his love at work. When he, when, he, when he exercises mercy and grace to us, it's his love at work. But what about wrath then? What about wrath? Is that God's love at work? Well, yes, it is. Yes, it is. I I, I think John Piper explains it very well, so I'm going to read what he said because I think it's... How does God... How does God's love and his wrath or justice, you know, how do they work coincidentally together? How are they working in harmony? Here's what he said. God's wrath is his love and action against sin. This is counterintuitive, but hear me out. God is love, and God does all things for his glory. 1 John 4, 8 and Romans eleven thirty six. 36. He loves his glory above all, and that's a good thing. Therefore, God rules the world in such a way that brings himself maximum glory. This means that God must act justly and judge sin, i.e., respond with wrath. Otherwise, God would not be God. God's love for his glory motivates his wrath against sin. Admittedly, God's love for his own glory is a most sobering reality for many and not good news for sinners. It is, after all a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10, verse 31. God is love, and He does everything to, to bring glory to Himself. But He's love, and, he, and that means that when He exercises wrath in the world, that He's motivated by love to do so, but at the same token, He gets glory for it. The Bible says in Proverbs sixteen four, I believe, God uses everything for his own ends, even the wicked for a day of disaster. So one day when he judges the world and, and all these people, unredeemed people, are cast away from him, it will still at the same time bring him glory. Because it, 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 it magnifies the holiness and the righteousness and, you know, who God is. God God's love requires him to act justly against sinners. And we see Jesus is the example of that. God's wrath being poured out upon his own son. Ultimately, why? For love's sake. His wrath being executed through love, and he even goes to the point in Isaiah 53 that he says, it pleased me. It pleased me to punish him. Why? He was acting out in love, pouring out His wrath upon His Son so that you and I could be redeemed. It's an amazing thing. But it was acted out in love. First John 4.10 says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of our sin, to be the satisfaction, to be the, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus took your debt and He satisfied it. Upon, you know, he paid the price for you and I. D.A. Carson said, Our problem in part is that a human experience, that in human experience, wrath and love normally abide in mutual exclusive compartments. They don't combine together, they're generally exclusively uh, compartmentalized in other, in different boxes. Love drives wrath out or wrath drives love out. We come closest to bringing them together perhaps in our response to a wayward act by one of our children. But normally we do not think that a wrathful person is loving. But this is not the way it is with God. God's wrath is not an impassable blind rage. However emotional it may be It is an entirely reasonable and willed response to offenses against his holiness. At the same time, his love wells up amidst his perfections and is not generated by the loveliness of the loved. Thus, there is nothing intrinsically impossible about wrath and love being directed toward the same individual or people at at once. God in his perfections must be wrathful against his rebel image bearers, for they have offended him. God in his perfections must be loving towards his rebel image bearers, for he is that kind of God. The reality is that the Old Testament displays the grace and the love of God in experience and types, and these realities become all the clearer in the New Testament. Similarly, the Old Testament displays the righteous wrath of God in experience and types, and these realities become all the clearer in the New Testament. In other words, both God's love and God's wrath are ratched up, ratcheted up in the move from the Old Testament to the New. These themes barrel along through redemptive history unsolved until they come to a resounding climax at the cross. Do you wish to see God's love? Look at the cross. Do you wish to see God's wrath? Look at the cross. We look at the cross, we see the perfect harmony of God's wrath and his love being poured out upon the same person. What does that say? That says that God loves us, but he will not allow us to rebel and live in sin forever. He will judge us eventually. He loves us, but he will pour his wrath out on us. He will. It's a promise. But Jesus took the price for us so that we wouldn't have to do that. God's wrath and His love work perfectly together in harmony. So, these three things, the, these three specific things help us to understand why God allows these sorts of things in the world and why He acts the way that He does in the Old Testament. You know, at why He... Wipes out different cities and people and all these kinds of things. Now, you know, I think the more we dive into understanding who God is, what the Bible says about who He is, how His attributes work together in harmony, you know, they're, they're not polar opposite. God isn't, you know, He, he is love and justice and, and He is merciful and He's kind and He's, and he's good and He's gentle and He's... All these things, but he's also holy and righteous and just, and he has to act, you know, he has to judge sin. So you've got all of these different attributes of God being acted out at the same time, and the more we get to know God, the more we understand his attributes, and the more we understand how they all work together in harmony to make him who he is. The thing is, um, you know, you, you will never ever come to the conclusion after a genuine searching out of what the scriptures say about who God is, you will never come to the place where you will say, that God is mean. He is unjust. He is, he, he, you know, he, you're never going to come to that conclusion if you genuinely seek Him out through the Word in a desire to really know. But if you don't, then you're going to come to that conclusion all day because your mind is a, a human, you know, you're, you're looking at things through a human eyeball, not through the the divine vision of who he is. So, you know, if you if you have more questions about this, if you're if you're questioning more about God, you know, different things maybe that even have occurred in your life. God, why did you allow me to go through this when I was a kid? Why did why were you put put me into this circumstance or whatever? It's not because he isn't good. It's not because he isn't fair. It's not because he isn't just it's not because he isn't he isn't any of these things. You know, you seek him out. Now you may not ever have the answer, but what I will tell you is that seeking out of God will give you a deeper and a richer understanding of who He is, and it will make you completely and totally different. God will transform you. I'm telling you from personal experience, because I have experienced that in my own life, where I've sought the Lord out, and as I've read the Bible over and over and over again, you know, um, He, he, as I read the Old Testament, I read some of these stories, my, my total mindset is different because I understand him more. I understand his attributes. I understand what he's doing. And I understand how patient and how kind he is and how merciful and, and gracious he really is. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this, this evening, Lord. And we, we went through a ton of scriptures, Lord. We went through so many different things. And uh, I just pray that you would make some sense of all of it, God. That you would use it for your glory. That somehow you would reveal yourself to us through all the things that were spoken here tonight, Lord, that you would give us better understanding of who you are and how you are relating in this world, that in the fact that you are omnipotent, that you are omniscient, that You are um, you are morally good, and yet the world that we live in seems to be contradictory, Lord, to who you are. And I just ask you to give us greater, deeper understanding of of that tonight as we've went through the scriptures use your word lord to shape us let us not get our worldview from our friends definitely not from the media lord but let our get our, let us get our worldview from the scriptures and who they say you are and what they say about you lord i i pray father for anyone here lord specifically and and that's listening lord later or whatever that um you know, that maybe they've heard this message and they've, it's touched their heart that you would help them to come to that place, Lord, of genuine repentance because there is a time frame and we don't know what that is. We definitely know that it's when we take our last breath for sure. But we ask you, Lord, to just, uh, to just bring salvation, Lord, to those that, that don't know you, that you would just help them to have right relationship with you. And we know that Jesus paid the price for us. And your word tells us that it's by faith through grace, by grace through faith that we uh, come to Christ. And so just a simple prayer of bowing our knee to you and saying, you're my king, repenting of our sin and turning to you. So Lord, we ask you to just have your way in us, Lord. Use us, God. Help us to be um, mighty image bearers of our glorious and great God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.